Ernie read Psalm 111 for us. I had actually told Greg I was going to speak in something entirely different. That's the kind of the preacher's prerogative to change his mind if he wants to about what he's going to speak. So uh, I think it was the Lord changed my mind for me. Um, and I'm not going to speak on what I told him, but rather on Psalm 121. <clears throat> um, so we'd like to read this psalm aloud. So can you, can you see it up there? If you can't, it's also on the little handout that I've given you. But can we read it together in unison? It's something that uh, we as a church, the Church of Jesus Christ, doesn't often do. So if you feel comfortable doing that, would you just read it together aloud uh, with me this morning? I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun <clears throat> nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So Psalm 121 uh, was likely written during the 70 years that God's people were in captivity in a foreign land. Uh, they were taken into exile because they had disobeyed God and turned away from him. So he took them off uh, to be captives in a foreign land. And, and during that time, uh, this particular psalm and perhaps a number of others were written. If you're using your Bible, you'll see that the psalm has a title. And the title is A Song of Ascents. A song of ascents and remembers with longing the times when Hebrew pilgrims would sing this song and others as they traveled from their homes in rural Israel to Jerusalem to worship God. So a song of ascents meaning a song going, going up. So any, wherever you lived in Israel, if you're going to Jerusalem, you're always going up because Jerusalem is on, on, a, on a series of mountains on a high plateau. So uh, Psalms 120 to 135, if you never looked at your Bible in this way, uh, those uh, 15 Psalms, 120 to 135, are all called Songs of Ascent. So this journey uh, was often long and difficult. Uh, some people would walk for as much as four days, walk for as much as four days. There were very few of them rode any kind of animal, um, so most of them walked traveling as far as 150 to 160 kilometers on foot. So the road wound through beautiful lush country at times, but it also went through wild, rough terrain where thieves and violent men lurked, looking for travelers to beat and rob. So I want you to imagine with me for a moment this morning that you're a pilgrim walking up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord as we look at a few slides. I don't know if, this, if you can see those okay. So... <clears throat> so this is the north end of the Sea of Galilee. So these are all pictures of modern-day Israel, so I can't take you back uh, 2,700 years to when the psalm was written, but these are pictures of modern-day Israel. So here's a group of pilgrims. They ride a bus most times, but here they're walking down to the, to the top of the Sea of Galilee where they're going to hear... Um, and that's mustard growing there around them. So Jesus talked about a grain of mustard seed, so that's mustard. So the next one. So here's the south end of the Sea of Galilee, much more lush. 
and um, lots of things growing. Uh, so, the, so the train changes as you go down through the land of Israel. The next. So this is around Mount Gilboa. If you remember your history, Mount Gilboa is where Saul and his three sons were killed in fighting against the Philistines where Saul fell on his sword. So uh, that's about the middle of the, the land of Israel. So you go through some pretty, or by some pretty rough terrain. So when the psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills, uh, who knows, but he may be remembering this kind of terrain as he was walking along. So this is the wilderness of Zin. And uh, not too many Israelites would have come to, from here to go to, to uh, Jerusalem, but uh, some of them would, and this is the kind of terrain they would have walked over. So this is the, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. So it's in this kind of terrain that guys would hide in the, the uh, valleys and the gullies and spring out to, um, to fall on weary travelers. And so that's where the, the story of the Good Samaritan, the man was beaten and robbed and left by the road for dead. It's probably that kind of terrain that that would have happened in. So you uh, may see some sheep along the way. These are Bedouin, uh, nomadic tribes that still occupy the land of Israel, uh, looking after their sheep. So these are, believe it or not, these are the fields where the shepherds watch their flocks just outside Bethlehem. So I'm not trying to destroy all your cherished notions of what might look like, but it is good for us to have a, a realization that some of it was harsh, a difficult country, and so you'd have, to, you'd have to have acres and acres just to feed a little flock of sheep. And finally, you saw the wall of Jerusalem kind of um, rearing up before you. That's the eastern gate. The Bible tells us when Jesus comes again, he's going to come through the eastern gate. So the Muslims have put cemeteries. So just below the wall, all along there, they put cemeteries, thinking that somehow they're going to stop him uh, when he comes uh, into Jerusalem. Okay, the next one. And you'll see that some other travelers will have got there uh, to, to the feast as well. Um, I could show you some other pictures. I didn't want to take too much time with it. But you see some interesting um, ways of dressing uh, when you're there, especially among the Orthodox Jews. And this is probably where you would have gone. So not to this particular place back in David's time or in the time of the psalmist, but this is the Wailing Wall. And this is as close as the Jewish people can get to their temple site now. Can't get any closer because the temple site itself is owned by the, the Arabs, the Muslims. So uh, just that little background to help you realize uh, what this psalm was like. So because Psalm 121 is an ascent psalm sung by the people of God, walking for days on the pilgrim way to Jerusalem, many people know this psalm as the traveler's psalm. So David Livingston, the famous missionary explorer to Africa, read Psalm 121 with his father and his sister just before he set out for Africa in 1840. Now you may have known and loved this psalm for years or it may be perhaps new to you. Its early verses uh, speak of our humanness. I lift up my eyes to the hills. <clears throat> From where does my help come? The writer cries out in verse 1. Later he talks about the fears that we have, about what may happen as we sleep. It refers to God as a shade against the blazing heat of the Middle Eastern sun and the dangers of the night. The psalm speaks obliquely about the evil in our world, 
evil that you and I are well aware of because we see it around us. We uh, read about it online or in the newspaper. We see or hear it on TV. And today, I want to focus with you on just one word in Psalm 121. It's a vital word. By the grace of God, this word supplies the antidote to our weakness, the courage to face our fears, the protection we need against the evil in our world. And our focus today is on the little word, keep. So look for it in the psalm, if you would. Verse 3, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Verse 5, The Lord is your keeper. Verse uh, 7, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. And verse 8, the Lord will keep you. You're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Six times in eight verses, the psalmist felt it was important to talk to us about God's keeping care. So that little word, keep, is a living, active word. Uh, Theology is the study of God. That's what that word means. Theo, God, and logos, to study, or the word. So theology is the study of God, and this word keep is deeply theological because it tells you what God is like. It tells you what God does. It describes his nature and his actions. And that word keep is also intensely practical because it helps us deal with fear and trouble with the comings and goings of our life in a sinful world. The Old Testament book of Job, which is perhaps the oldest book in the Bible, along with Genesis, The book of Job tells us in chapter 5, verse 7, that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. So when you're sitting around your campfire and the sparks are going up, uh, let it remind you that Job tells us that that man's born, you and I, men and women, are born to trouble just just as surely as the sparks fly upward. Everyone has trouble. And the author of Psalm 121 is in trouble because he asks in verse 1, where does my help come from? And in verse 2, we find his answer. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And the rest of the psalm is simply an exploration of how the God who is our creator helps his troubled disciples. The psalmist focuses on God's keeping care for his people. Over and over, he affirms that you can trust God to look after you, uh, to keep you if your faith and your hope is in him. So as a Hebrew word in here, I was reminded today in looking up at the cross, some of you do from time to time, but the letters there are not in Hebrew, they're in Aramaic and Latin and, um, what was the other one, Greek. Um, The words above Jesus uh, when he died. But the Hebrew word that is translated keep here in Psalm 121 means to watch over, to keep, to guard. And it's used here as a participle. It's not an English lesson, but it's important. A participle describes a continuous, ongoing action. And so the assurance of this psalm is that God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, is constantly watching over, keeping, guarding those who look up to him in faith. He keeps every person who has given themselves and their lives over to him. So, in case that 
terminology is unfamiliar to you. What, what do we mean when we say that a person's life is given over to God? Well, we mean that this person has put their faith in Jesus Christ to forgive their sins, to give them eternal life, to be their God all their days. Such a person is not perfect, and none of us are, but their life uh, tells a story of how they've dedicated themselves to God. <clears throat> it means they're serious about living for Him. And if you're around them, uh, you sense there's a joy, a peace, sometimes a patience about them that is not uh, typical. They're consistent in attending and serving in their local church. They're concerned to do the right thing, to be holy before God and blameless in the sight of those who are around them. They go out of their way to help others. They're focused on serving God rather than on their own activities, on their own pleasures. And as time goes by, if you know a person like this, you begin to get the idea that they read their Bible a lot, they talk to God often in prayer, they, they look for opportunities to talk to other people about Jesus, about his love, his forgiveness, and the gift of life that he gives to those who trust him. So that's kind of what we mean when we say someone's life has been given to God. And those are the people whose life God watches over, as we're reading here about in Psalm 121. So I'd like to look a little more closely with you at this psalm now <clears throat> to see what we can learn about how God keeps and guards those who have given their lives to him. And I'm simply going to talk to you about those four things that are on <clears throat> your outline, if you have it there. So first of all, God's keeping care of his children is described here as unsleeping. The psalm says, He will not let your foot be moved. In other words, he won't let you be overthrown. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So the Bible teaches us then that God is a spirit, that he has no need of sleep as we do, so he never sleeps. He's never off guard, never dozing, never unaware. He's a faithful, ever alert watchman who is aware of every little thing that's impinging your life today if you're one of his children. A Puritan author, John Gill, writes this in one of his books, and I quote, Neither angels nor men are the keepers of the saints, but the Lord himself. He is the keeper of every individual saint, of every regenerate person, of every one of his sheep, of every member of his church. He keeps them by his power. He preserves them by his grace. He holds them with his right hand guides them by his counsel, keeps their feet from falling, and brings them safe to glory. And a watchful keeper he is. He does not so much as slumber. He keeps them night and day, lest any harm them. Well, secondly, uh, God's keeping power is personal. Verse 5 of this psalm says, The Lord is your keeper. Now, I'm not sure how closely you look at your Bible when you read it, but <clears throat> if you look at the word Lord here, you'll see that every time it occurs in this psalm, at least in the, in the version I'm using, which is the ESV, every time it occurs, it's in all caps. So the big capital letter and then small caps. Verse 2, verse 5 twice, verse 7 and verse 8. And that word, Lord, is also four letters in the Hebrew. It's known as, it's a famous word in the Hebrew. 
is called the Tetragrammaton, meaning four letters. <laughs> and those four letters are Y-H-W-H in Hebrew, reading from the right to the left, as opposed to the way we read. So it's the great name of God pronounced Yahweh. The Jews would not pronounce it because they felt it was too holy to pronounce, and so they called him Jehovah. And that is simply the same four letters given different vowel points. So that word, that name is used here because God wants you to know that the one who watches over you, who keeps you, is the great I am, the Yahweh of Israel. The Yahweh of Israel, the God of Israel, is the one whom Moses met at the burning bush, the one who sent him off to Egypt to deliver Israel from that country. Now, <clears throat> I haven't given you this verse in your... On, so there's verses on the back of many of the ones that I'll quote this morning. Um, and I haven't given you one in Deuteronomy 33 to 16. It's a very interesting verse because in that verse, Moses talks about God in, a, in quite a curious way. <clears throat> In that verse, God, Moses calls God the one who dwells in the bush. Because that's, of course, that's where Moses first met God, in that bush that was not consumed. It was flaming. And out of that bush, God spoke to him. So he calls God the one who dwells in the bush. And that burning bush in the desert of Sinai, remember the desert of Sin we saw up there, very similar to that, barren, dry, rocky, one of, the young, one of the men who went with us to Israel uh, the last time Carol and I went, his name is Dave. And after three or four days of traveling around the land of Israel, he said to me, Jim, it's just rocks, 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 rocks. Because <laughs> we were looking at all sorts of archaeological sites. But it is a lot of rocks. And in that desert, that rocky desert of Sinai, Moses met God for the first time. And that experience shaped his understanding of God for the rest of his life life. And perhaps you can recall having experience of God that shaped your understanding of him for the rest of your life. When I was 14, uh, living on our family farm in southeastern Saskatchewan, <clears throat> we were moving our cattle home from their summer pasture. And as we crossed the provincial highway, I was riding a an Icelandic pony, which is a bit bigger than a Shetland pony, a bit smaller than a regular horse, riding Icelandic pony. <clears throat> and as we crossed the highway, uh, he slipped and fell, and my leg happened to be under him when he fell. So he broke my leg. Well, after a, a painful two-hour car ride to Regina, a week in traction, and then surgery, I went home with a full-length leg cast, two four-inch pins holding my knee together, and crutches. And when the cast was removed six weeks later, I went back to Regina again for two months of physiotherapy, learning how to walk again, uh, stretching those muscles that had so long been still. And during those long, uh, lonely weeks, isolated in a strange city, I came to new, know God in a, in a new way. Because I realized that I could trust him when I was all alone, far from my parents, far from my home, far from my friends, not really knowing any of the people that I was living with or that were treating me in the hospital. So I learned, in effect, that the one who dwells in the bush is my keeper, too. And I hope that 
you had that kind of experience as well. So it's of the highest importance for you and I to realize that being our keeper, taking care of his children, is something that God takes personally and seriously. Father, Son, and Spirit. So I think I've given you this one, John 17, verse 11 and 12, yeah. <clears throat> in John 17, 11 and 12, uh, Jesus praying in the garden to his Father just before his death on the cross. And this is what he says to his Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. So you see what's happening? Jesus, in effect, kind of handing God the baton, saying, Father, I've watched over, I've kept these who are yours all the time I was here, but now I ask you to keep them in your name. Well, thirdly, uh, God's keeping care is all-encompassing, not just unsleeping and personal, but it's all-encompassing. So verse 7 here, um, speaking of our God, says, He will keep you from all evil. A-double-L, all. He will keep your life. So those who are faithful to the Lord will experience troubles and dangers. It's part of life for all of us. But God's promise here is that He will faithfully keep the righteous man or woman in all the perils that we encounter along the way. So author and pastor Eugene Peterson once wrote a book on the songs of ascent, including Psalm 121. His book was called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's a wonderful description of the Christian life. A long obedience in the same direction. Obeying God all our lives until we go home to heaven. So Peterson talks about the difficulties and struggles we have as Christians. And he says that the promise of this psalm is not that we won't go through trouble or sorrow or pain, but rather that no injury, no illness, no accident, no distress will have evil power over us, that is, will be able to separate us from God's purposes in us. So if you're a believer, if you belong to Jesus this morning, or walking with him, Nothing can separate you from God's purposes. Now, sometimes God's purposes involve difficulties. That's how he shapes us and forms us, makes us like Jesus. That's how he tests us to see if we're really obedient to him. So we do have troubles and difficulties, but none of those can separate us from God's purposes in us. So friends, God's watchful care for his people is much more than just physical. So the Bible tells us that there is an evil angel whose name is Satan, who is the enemy and the accuser of every person, but especially of Christians. Remember what uh, Peter said? Your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, roams about seeking whom he may devour. And you are the one, if you're a Christian, who he has his sights on. And that's why we need this keeping power of God. That's why this is not just an academic exercise, a spiritual thing we're going through this morning. We need this keeping power. So this psalm teaches us that God protects and guards his children from the plans, the arrows, the attacks of Satan, from unseen personal evil, sorry, unseen spiritual evil, as well as from physical danger. 
So remember what Satan said to God about Job? You've put a hedge around him, so I can't even touch him. And so God allowed Satan to go a little farther, and Satan came back and complained again. So what that should teach us is that for you as God's child, God has a hedge around you. If you're walking with him, if you're following him, he's protecting you actively day by day. Now, when we think about life's dangers, our tendency is often to focus on the fears and the physical threats we face, the things that can happen to us physically. But this psalm is teaching us to think about life from an eternal point of view rather than just an earthly point of view. It calls us to look deeper at a reality that's greater in our body to think about the core of who you are, your soul, your spirit. And this understanding of life is what the Bible has in mind in this psalm when it says that he will keep your life. Verse 7. So the word life here, um, a man named Derek Kidner says in his book, is a many-sided word. Life is a many-sided word, like a diamond with many facets to it. Meaning, there's more to this word than we first think about when we look at it. So when we consider our life, sometimes we think first and foremost of our body. But if you'll just remember with me what Jesus said to his followers. And this is Mark 8. I've given it to you there on the back if you want. Mark 8, 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it. So if your sole purpose in life is to hang on to your things, your plans, your everything, the Bible says you're going to lose it all. But then Jesus goes on, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So that's why sometimes we call the Christian life the upside-down kingdom. You have to lose your life for Jesus in order to be able to save it. Jesus went on, For what does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So your true life then, my friend, the essence of who you are is not your body, it's your soul. And that's what this psalm is emphasizing. And it's saying to us that God, our creator God, guards and keeps the life, the soul, of the man or woman, the young person who belongs to him. Now, he does watch over our bodies too, in wonderful ways. But sometimes we look at what happens to Christians that they lose their life, they're martyred, uh, they're persecuted, all those things that happen in our world against Christians, beheaded. And we wonder, well, where was God? And we need to realize that in situations like that, that we need to look at that from an eternal point of view, not an earthly point of view. So God is keeping the life of that person, and they are safe at home in heaven if they have lost their life here on earth. So whatever the physical and spiritual dangers of our life God brings each of his children, their life, their soul, their real being, safely home to heaven. And that's what Paul celebrates in Romans 8, 38, when he writes, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in all creation, and that includes everything, can separate you from Christ. Well, lastly, God's keeping power of his children is eternal. Verse 8 of Psalm 121 says, The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So in one way, when you look at life, and I do, life can be seen as a long parade of going out and coming in, going out and coming in, going out and coming in. So we go out to work and we come in to rest. We go out to school, we come back in to be part of the family again. And so it goes all the way through our lives, out and in, out and in. Well, not long ago, a friend of mine died. He loved the Lord and served him in Africa and here as well as a missionary, a builder, a faithful servant. Spent the last years of his life along with his wife ministering to university students on the campus of the University of Calgary. And in his dying, uh, by the grace of God, he undertook the last great going out of his earthly life. So death is. It's just us going out. And this psalm assures us that just as surely as God was keeping my friends going out and coming in during his 92 years of life on earth, just as surely God was also watching over his going out in death and his coming into heaven. And there, as this psalm says, in heaven, God is watching over his coming, his going out and his coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So both Carolyn's parents and my parents have gone years ago. They're safely home in heaven. If I were to show you this Bible and to show you Psalm 121, you would find the pages are all pockmarked because at the graveside of my dad, I read Psalm 121. And on that day, the snow was falling in little granules and it landed on my Bible and transformed my Bible forevermore. But this psalm reminds us that those who are in heaven, they're still going out and coming in. And God watches over them there, just as surely as he's watching over us here. So some people may wonder, well, what does God keep his people for? So he keeps them, he guards them. What is he keeping them for? Why does he keep them? And one of the favorite Bible verses of my friend who died recently was Jeremiah 29, 11. Many of you know it. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. So God keeps his people for many, many different reasons. Because it's his nature to do so. He's a God. That's just part of what he does. He keeps his people. He keeps us because he loves us with an everlasting love. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. God doesn't continue to be faithful to you because you're such a great person. He continues his faithfulness to you and me because he's such a great God, because his love to us is everlasting. God keeps us because he has plans for us. Wonderful plans for our life on earth and plans that go far beyond this veil of tears. 
And God keeps and guards us, his beloved ones, especially so that one day we'll join him in heaven to rejoice forever in what he has done for us in Christ and to share his glory. The Bible says you and I will share his glory in heaven. But what is heaven like, you might ask? Well, the first verse of an old country song Thanks, Jordan, for singing that song this morning. It had a little bit of country to it. <laughs> the first verse of an old country song gives us a not bad glimpse. We read of a place that's called heaven. It's made for the pure and the free. These truths in God's word he has given. How beautiful heaven must be. So the Apostle Paul, wrestling with whether living here or going to heaven is better, says in Philippians 1.23, My desire is to part and be with Christ, for that is better by far, he says. Lest you think that heaven is just going to be a real downer, just sitting on a cloud and playing a harp. Better by far. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes that in the coming ages, God will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So for all the rest of eternity, those who belong to God are going to see over and over and over and over again the immeasurable, unmeasurable riches of his grace. God's just going to keep on pouring that out upon us in heaven. King David says to the Lord in Psalm 17, When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. John, the Apostle John says, We don't know what we're going to be like, but we know that when we see him, we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. And thinking about God's eternal care for his own, David says in Psalm 36, they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. One of my favorite pictures of heaven is a table. It's a table that starts here with all the Fancy silverware and eight or nine different silverware pieces around each plate. And the, and the table stretches all the way out to the horizon and beyond. And the caption says, come, for all things are now ready. The Apostle John, describing heaven, writes this. They are before, speaking of God's children, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Remember the heat that Psalm 121 talks about? For the lamb in the midst of the throne shall be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So all of that is just a little tiny glimpse of what the Lord, who is your keeper, guides and keeps his children for. Now, as I conclude, it may be that you've never thought much about how God watches over those who belong to him. It may be that you've never personally experienced God's keeping care. And I want to assure you this morning, if that's the case, that if you truly wish to meet the God of the Bible and discover how he can keep you and care for you, you can do that. Right now, today, simply call out to God, ask him to forgive your sin, 
Put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, and he'll make you his child. And you'll start to know that daily care and keeping that is so wonderful. So the, the question that they tell you in Bible school, at least Dr. Weinhauer told us that, we need to answer is this, so what? <laughs> he spent all this time talking to me about the Bible. So what? What's the implications for us, for me? Well, I'd like to talk with you briefly, very briefly, about three ways your life can be different if you really believe the Lord is your keeper. First one, God's keeping care can give us a sense of security. The New Testament letter of Jude begins like this. <coughs> Excuse me. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So if you're a child of God today, you can count on the fact that you are being kept for Jesus and by him. You can't see him, but he's keeping you. He's watching over you. That same letter ends this way. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So day by day, God keeps his children from stumbling, from falling, from losing the salvation with which we have been redeemed. So it should give you a sense of security that your physical life and especially your spiritual life, your spirit, your soul, is safe in God's care. Secondly, God's keeping care can free us from worry. Jesus says in Matthew 6, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So your life, friends, um, will be happy and joyful and free of worry to the extent that you take those words seriously. That you believe that God really will provide your food, your clothing, the place you live. He'll look after those things. And our responsibility, what we are to do, is we are to seek first his kingdom, and he'll look after all of these things. So um, I started in the ministry in 1975 as a young uh, green-behind-the-ears youth pastor in Regina, Saskatchewan. So for the last nearly 50 years in the ministry, God has looked after Carolyn and I, all of our needs. I mean, we've worked the same way you do for our salary and all that kind of stuff, but we've seen him provide in many different ways. I forget the stories I've told you, but when we were in Regent College, um, going to school there, going to a little brethren church, Cascades Gospel Chapel, our car needed some repairs. And being students, we didn't have lots of extra money. But that Sunday in church, someone came up to us and 
in the church, and, and we'd only been there a few weeks, came up to us and handed us a little envelope and said, we just want to have fellowship with you. And I, I'm not, don't come from the brethren. I didn't have a clue what that meant. So I went home and opened the envelope, and there was pretty much the exact amount of money we needed to repair our car. So the Brethren Church, having fellowship means, I want to, I want to help, I want to be part of, of your life as a, as a Christian. So we've just found over and over that God looks after us as we seek his kingdom first. Well, uh, the third thing I want to mention to you is that God's keeping care can be a daily assurance for you, for me. One day, about 3,000 years ago, God told Moses that he was to teach Aaron, the high priest, how to bless the people of Israel. <clears throat> and that, at that time, God provided for Moses the exact words that Aaron was to use in blessing God's people. And these words from Numbers chapter 6 that are familiar to you remind us again that the Lord is our keeper. He's our stronghold, the rock we cling to day by day. He wants us to find joy and comfort every day in his promise that he is blessing us, encouraging us, keeping us and guarding us as we walk with him. So here are the words God gave to Aaron to use as he blessed Israel. And I pray there'll be a blessing and encouragement for you today, tomorrow, and every day until our Lord Jesus comes again. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so, Father, we bless your name today for your keeping, guarding, careful, watch care over us. And we just rejoice in the fact that in the lives of each and every one of your children, you do this. You keep us from harm and danger physically, but especially you watch over our life, our spirit, our soul. And so again, we gladly commit ourselves to your care again for this day and for this week. I thank you for these, your people who serve you here in this place. And I pray you'd bless them and encourage them. For those who are visiting today, I just pray that wherever they serve you, that they might find and experience your keeping care. And Father, for those who may never have experienced that today, I just pray that they will turn to you and call out to you, give themselves to you and trust in your son Jesus, that they may experience your keeping care from now and on to eternity. So we bless your name. Thank you for your love to us in Christ's name. Amen. So God bless you as you go. Ernie wanted me to remind you that there's snacks right next door here. And uh, so... Um, we hope you have a wonderful week. <clears throat>